Morning, morning. Morning. <laughs> good morning. My name is Paul. Oh, I even got a cheer for my name. That's good. Uh, I'm married to Heather. And uh, yeah, a cheer for my wife as well. And, uh, and I'm one of the leaders here at Sutton Vineyard. Uh, I run one of the small groups that we have along with Wendy Sullivan, who was just up here a moment ago. And you'll also, on occasion, find me back there on the bass, making grooves one note at a time, which, to be fair, is about as much as I can manage. Anyway, if this is your first time with us, an extra welcome for you, and a truly enormous hello to those of you online or catching up on the podcast as well. So, we've just finished our series in John's Gospel, which overall, because John's a big book, took quite some time. And we're now in a new series where we're looking at people who met Jesus and the impact it had on them. And so this morning we're in John's Gospel. Hmm. <laughs> We're actually near the start of John's Gospel in chapter 1 where a man called Nathaniel meets Jesus. So who is Nathaniel? Well, he only shows up in John's Gospel, at least by the name Nathaniel. There's a significant number of people, me included, who think Nathaniel is actually the disciple Bartholomew. Now, How do you get from one to the other? Well, we have son of names in English called patronymic names. Hmm. Johnson... Clarkson, Davidson, Paulson, Coulson, Jackson, so on. I could probably do this all day. Um, Bar means son of. So Bartholomew means son of Tholomew or son of Talmai if you want to be near the original. And if he's the son of Talmai, then he might well go by another name. And that could be Nathaniel. Nathaniel, son of Talmai or Nathaniel Bartholomew, if you like. The other reason people think Nathaniel is Bartholomew is because of a close association with another disciple, Philip, who also features in this morning's talk. Bartholomew and Philip are always listed together as disciples, like the brothers James and John. And from John's telling here, Nathaniel and Philip are clearly close friends. Finally, the interaction with Jesus we're about to look at strongly suggests that Nathaniel became a disciple of Jesus. So there are good reasons to think Nathaniel and Bartholomew are the same person. So, let's take a look at the very last verses of John chapter 1, John 1, 43 to 51, if you want to follow along in your Bibles, although it will appear on screen as well. Now, while I'm reading, keep an eye out for references to Old Testament patriarch Jacob. Now, I'm going to be using the ESV translation here, so if it's a little different to yours, uh, if you've got your Bible, that might be why. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened 
and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Cut to black. Credits. Next episode starts in five, four, three. I mean, it's like it's a seriously dramatic finish to chapter one, is it not? I love it. All right, let me pray for us, and then we'll take a deeper dive into what's happening here. Father, I pray that as we look at this moment in your word together this morning, I pray that we would meet you in a new way. Holy Spirit, open our hearts and minds to what you have for us this morning. Amen. All right, we're going to work our way through what's happening here in this wonderful encounter, bit by bit. And we're going to see there's far more to this moment than we might initially expect. And there's a lot we can learn from it. And we'll do this in four parts. And as we get to each, I'll tell you what they are. Ooh, suspense. Let's start with the first part. First, then, knowledge is power. Let's start at verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now Philip has had a transformative experience with Jesus, which John has slimmed down to follow me. It's kind of the shortest testimony ever. He said, follow me, and I did. But there's clearly more to it as Philip's got keen insight into exactly who Jesus is. And his excitement is palpable. And he's going to do the one thing we all do when we're excited. He's going to tell a friend about it. Now, fun fact. Something we lose in this translation is the ordering of the Greek. And the fact that it builds and then its ending makes you go, what? Taken literally, word for word, it goes like this. Him whom wrote of Moses in the law. Also the prophets, we have found Jesus, son of Joseph of Nazareth. It's like Philip's gone, we found him. We found the Messiah and he's from Croydon. <laughs> no, no offense to Croydon. It's just all a bit unexpected, you know? But it's a close match because Nathaniel's from Cana and Nazareth is the next town along. So it's, it's kind of like that feeling. And Nazareth was, at best, a bit of a forgotten backwater and not the place anyone expected to produce the Messiah, at least according to how they understood the Old Testament. Now, in response, Nathaniel, well, he makes a dismissive and flippant retort, or as the kids would say, he throws a little shade. Can anything good come from Nazareth? <laughs> Philip, no, it can't. That's the idea. Now, of course, at this point, Nathaniel doesn't know about the Bethlehem birth, and he doesn't know about Jesus being taken to Egypt to escape Herod's mass infanticide. All he has is an incomplete picture about Jesus and his personal history, which isn't helping. But his approach of testing claims against God's word, well, that's spot on. And we'll come back to that in a moment. Now, what I particularly like about this moment, though, is that Philip responds to Nathaniel so wisely. When Nathaniel objects to the Messiah coming from Nazareth... Well, Philip doesn't engage in lengthy theological discussions, clarifications, and negotiations, nor does he say, your loss, and move on. He just says, come and see for yourself. And Nathaniel, well, he's equally wise. He does exactly that. He's skeptical, granted, but he's neither closed-minded nor is he gullible. He's curious and wise enough to check it out for himself. Now, we need to notice two things. 
One is that Philip gives Nathaniel an extremely shorthand description of who Jesus is. We found the one Moses talked about. It's the one the Old Testament prophets were talking about. And that covers most of your Old Testament, really. And Philip can take that tack because he and Nathaniel both clearly know their Jewish Bibles, our Old Testament, inside and out and back to front. And equally, we also need to notice that Nathaniel's first instinct is to claim, test the claim against all that he understands from Scripture. Now, every day we get bombarded by life, don't we? We know that. Difficult situations, ambiguous claims, disinformations, scandals, pandemics, wars. And they need to be brought into perspective, God's perspective, and quickly, automatically even. In other words, we need to do the same thing as Nathaniel. Here's Proverbs 24, 3 to 5, where Solomon is talking about wisdom. By wisdom, a house is built, and by understanding, it is established. By knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. A wise man is full of strength, and a man of knowledge enhances his might. That last verse, verse 5, is the origin of the phrase, knowledge is power. And you could take these verses to generally refer to human wisdom, and I suppose that's fine. But there's a deeper truth here, which is echoed all over Scripture. Spiritual wisdom and power, sorry, spiritual wisdom and knowledge of the kind offered by God's word is a source of tremendous power. Not the power to dominate or oppress, no. God's word offers his perspective, and it gives us the power to live well to greet this life with grace, love, dignity, integrity, confidence, and wisdom. When Jesus himself comes face to face with Satan in the wilderness, his weapon of choice, his superpower, is God's word. So, we turn to God's word like Nathaniel to hopefully get some answers. But, to perhaps state the obvious, this book, the Bible, isn't a bespoke to you encyclopedia of quick and easy answers. It's a collection of stories, revelations, songs, proverbs, prophecies, prayers, and more, written over many years by God's people, detailing their experiences and interactions with God in their times and cultures. So you get letters, histories, long lists of families, instructions to build a temple, Sacrificing cleanliness routines. Goodness, you even get a talking donkey. Yes, really, numbers 22. And it's easy to dismiss the parts of it we find hard. And you know what I mean if you've ever tried the Bible in one year. You start and you're in Genesis and you're like, I got this. I'm enthusiastic. And then you hit the harder parts and the more confusing parts and you're like, why am I even doing this to myself? When am I even going to need to know this? Like it's secondary school maths that's since been forgotten because seriously, when am I going to need to know how to solve quadratic equations? Like seriously. It can feel hard. And if we're candid, it can sometimes seem irrelevant. The answers we were desperately seeking often come neither quickly nor easily. And the Bible can also be challenging in other ways too. If you're anything like me, you occasionally side-eye your Bible and you think, not today. Because to open God's word in particular, as I've found, is to come face-to-face -face with some truths that aren't always easy to hear or handle. 
God is a holy God. He's the creator of everything, seen and unseen, and I, I am not. He's in charge of the universe, and I'm not. He has the perspective of eternity, and I do not. And so I avoid him and his word. It's as old a thing as Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that one. And maybe you recognize what I'm saying. But if and when we see the Bible, God, or ourselves this way, we need to know that we are missing something very important. Well, hold on, because what happens with Nathaniel next, I believe, will unlock the solution. Second, then, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Let's take a look at what happens next. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, oh, I love this, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. One sentence from Jesus. Massive value. I kid you not, I've been looking at this for weeks, and it's just amazing. And it is the key to unlocking our conundrum. Now, Jesus sees Nathaniel coming. And the first thing he declares, at least at surface level, is Nathaniel's integrity. He's honest. He's without guile. He has no deceptive streak whatsoever. Now, Nathaniel has also just insulted Nazareth. And while Jesus doesn't tell him he's wrong, there does seem to be an element of knowing to what Jesus says. A sort of, oh, I see we've got somebody who's going to tell us how things really are. But as an opener, well, it's a slight nod, I suppose, to Nathaniel's indiscreet remark. But as an opener, Jesus has, as always, pitched perfectly. He knows full well that this will catch Nathaniel's attention. Now, Nathaniel responds, how do you know me? Because there's another aspect to what Jesus says that has him on the back foot. You see, as well as this surface level statement Jesus makes about Nathaniel's integrity, he also appears to be making another much deeper statement, one with a prophetic edge about Nathaniel's identity. Now, we have to look very carefully at what Jesus says because it's another shorthand remark, a bit like the conversation between Philip and Nathaniel earlier, and we could easily miss it. Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Jesus is counterbalancing two things. Alethos in the Greek means surely, truly, genuinely, the real dealy. In this case, it means it's like translated as indeed. And dolos which means deceit, trickery, guile. And Jesus is counterbalancing them around Israelite. Nathaniel is a true Israelite. It makes you wonder, what's a false Israelite? Well, the deceit at the end seems like a big nod towards Jacob. Why? Because it was a well-known and part of Jewish culture and upbringing to know that Jacob was someone who took things, took power by devious, underhand, deceptive means. His name means heel grabber or supplanter. Someone who takes things by devious, underhand, deceptive means. I mean, look, he stole his older brother's birthright by lying to his blind father. So if we swap terms a second, it's like Jesus says, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no Jacob at all. Now even that needs more processing. Let's look at it this way. What's the difference between Jacob and Israel? They're the same person, the same human, 
but they're different identities. The source of those different identities is God. God turns everything on its head when he gives Jacob a new identity, Israel. Genesis 32, 28. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven, wrestled with God and with men and have prevailed. The name Israel means he who sees God or he who contends with God, kind of both. The name implies that to wrestle with God, to engage with him fully, with heart, soul, mind, and strength, is to apprehend who he is, is to, in some sense, see him and see something of his nature. That process changes you from the inside out because you can't come into contact with the living God and leave unchanged. The changes wrought by wrestling with God is what equips you for this life. And God clearly expects us to wrestle with him through songs, through prayer, and crucially through his written word. You see that in Psalms as one example, and you see David repeatedly asking God, what's going on and why? It's no sign of weakness, quite the opposite. It's the sign of a healthy relationship. It's a strong faith, and not a weak one, that chooses to wrestle with God. So Jacob then, he no longer achieves successes on his own terms, but is instead someone who wrestles, who seeks God and lives under God's promises and blessings. He is instead Israel. Now to come back to Nathaniel, in this one sentence, Jesus affirms Nathaniel's true identity as someone who's like Israel, not Jacob. Someone who's genuinely seeking and wrestling with God, a true Israelite, and not trying to get ahead with empty religion, his own abilities or schemes. Beyond his visible integrity, Nathaniel is also the real deal, spiritually speaking. You see, you can try and know the Bible inside out. You can know all it has to say in words. You can do the Bible in one week. You can be the most religious person in the world, and you will have entirely missed the point. It can live in your head, and it can bypass your heart and identity. The Bible points you to a deeply personal relationship with God, with God as your Father. He is holy. He is the creator of everything, but... He loves you more deeply than you could possibly fathom. And he wants only the best for you. He longs for you to pray, to sing, and to open his word so that he can communicate with every aspect of your being and so that you might become more like Jesus, equipped and empowered with grace, love, dignity, integrity, confidence, and wisdom. He wants you to wrestle with him before you wrestle with the world because he loves you. Now, is it worth it? Well, yes, of course. But it can be work. And when it is, know only that you're following in a long tradition of others who've gone before you, that your small group will go with you. And if you're not in a small group, join one. God loves you and means only the best for you. Maybe that's the first time you've heard that, or maybe you, like me, need things repeating to you until they reverberate in every part of your soul. Because I certainly do. Over the past couple of years, God has been dealing with me in this area particularly. I've spent quite a lot of time in the Bible over my lifetime, and that has been so valuable. I wouldn't change it for a moment, but it's also true that I've held God at arm's length. 
Not that I say I've only had a head faith or that I was relying on religion. That's not exactly true either. But it's a lot more challenging and painful for me personally to let God's Holy Spirit really work at the level of my heart and soul. It feels dangerous, scary, unpredictable, like I'm not the one in control. At the back end of last year, as some of you know, I hit rock bottom. I was unable to work. I was crying at my desk, trying to do the basics of my job. Total mess. I had no choice but to acknowledge that, yes, I needed to take, out, take time out from work, but more than that, I needed to let God do more work at heart level. It hadn't been none to that point, but it needed to be far more than I was willing to allow. And I discovered once again that no amount of head knowledge was getting me out, no religion left, no schemes left to employ, no way to think myself out of my problems. So we wrestled, me and God, day after day, properly for what felt like the first time in years, if not ever. And I'm still a work in progress, 100%. Despite being many years, in my, um, being many years into my walk with God, it still feels like early days. It's scary work and it's often hard, but there's nowhere else I'd rather be. He is unbelievably gracious, patient, and loving. The love far outweighs my fear. He's the safest pair of hands in the universe, and my challenge is mostly these days not to keep him at arm's length. So what's Jesus saying? Let's come back to that. He's saying that Nathaniel's heart is turned towards knowing God himself. He's seeing Nathaniel's deepest desire. The thing that drives his passion and excitement for God's word is not head knowledge, nor is it tips and tricks, not to lord it over others, nor to be holier than thou. None of that is to know the mind and heart of God. That's what he's trying to do. And Nathaniel says he bypasses deceit because ultimately he is seeking God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. So, know the Bible. It's a gift from God and it's absolutely amazing. It's a book of kaleidoscopic wonder. As you live with it, you realize it's got this endless depth. And just when you think you've seen it all, you see something new. Sometimes I read something in it and I'm like, I'm sure that was added in the last two weeks. <laughs> God's word comes alive in new ways because it reflects the God who has endless depth. And it's also strangely timeless. Those words have been there for thousands of years. What? Seriously? How? And even the hard bits often contain hidden gems. So know your Bible, but also don't stop there. Know the one behind the Bible. Engage with him with every fiber of your being. Let him work on your heart and soul. Drop the religion. Pick up the relationship. It's not what you know. It's who you know. Third, it's not who you know. It's who knows you. Nathaniel just got far more than he bargained for, didn't he? He's shocked by what Jesus says. Jesus has insight into him that he really shouldn't have, at least humanly speaking. So, naturally, Nathaniel asks, how do you know me? But when you look at it, Jesus actually gives a really odd answer. The answer he gives is about a location under the fig tree. Like, 
How do you know me? I saw you in the kitchen. Okay, I guess. I under the fig tree is not an obvious answer to that question. And this is what I'm talking about, by the way, when I say you see new things. I have read this a lot of times and never once noticed that Jesus doesn't actually answer Nathaniel's question directly. Well, it turns out, though, that under the fig tree is likely a Jewish idiom of the day, a bit like how we say we're over the moon. Or when I tell my family I'm off to the shed, I don't mean I'm inspecting gardening equipment. I mean I'm going to my office to try and get work done. So what does under the fig tree mean if it's an idiom? Well, there's no definitive answer. But it seems it was common practice at the time for people to study God's word under fig trees. Rabbis would routinely send students there. It would be quiet, secluded, and shaded. Now, it's also worth seeing here that fig trees are significant in God's word. They're often referenced when there's something afoot in God's kingdom. Like when Jesus curses the fig tree and it withers. It's a highly symbolic moment that summarizes the spiritual health of God's people. Summary? Not good. But here's another reference, and it's one that I love. This time it's from Old Testament prophet Micah, a contemporary of Isaiah. Isaiah's like 66 chapters. Micah's more like seven. And the first three chapters are really bleak and hard going. But come chapter four, it turns on its head, and it becomes this amazing messianic vision of the future in God's kingdom. So let's take a look because it's really good, and I think it's a particularly beautiful part of the Bible. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. Sounding good already. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion, that's that mountain, shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. (sighs) But they shall sit, every man, under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. I am loving it. I'm in. Now this conversation, I think, it might make more sense. Let's suppose Nathaniel is studying God's word, which is what many commentators think he's doing, quite possibly looking at Messianic scriptures like Micah. He knows what he's looking at and pondering, But nobody else does. Now along comes Philip. We found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. Timely, but it doesn't fit. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Well, come and see. So off they go. Behold, a true Israelite, a seeker of God. How do you know me? Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, reading my word, I saw you. Jesus, as the second member of the Trinity, knows where Nathaniel's heart really lies. He knows where his attention has been, and he knows what he's desperately seeking. And you can almost hear the penny drop. In a split second, Nathaniel sees Jesus for who he truly is. Only God would know this. 
He is the one Nathanael has been looking for all this time. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now, as I said, Jesus' declaration was also prophetic. Nathanael is a seeker, and he does see things as they truly are, as Jesus knew he would. He knew he was going to say this bit. Nathaniel sees Jesus' identity far more quickly than virtually anybody else in Scripture, I would argue. And what he says about Jesus is notable. He calls Jesus Son of God, which is arguably a greater title than Messiah, or at least the type of military and political messianic figure they were expecting. And besides Pilate, Nathaniel is the only one who refers to Jesus as the King of Israel. Nathaniel's insight is quicker and it's deeper than everyone else's. And I would argue it's because he spent so much time in God's word seeking him. And because God's revelation to him is perfect in timing and in tone. Which it is because God knows him intimately. Now you might be able to guess what's coming here, I'm sure. It's not just Nathaniel. God sees you too. And you might feel amazing this morning, on top of the world. You might also feel ambivalent, a bit down in the dumps, or completely lost. None of it has escaped his attention. None of it. You're known. You're understood more completely than you even know yourself. There's a thought. And you're loved. I regularly need reminding of these things. So maybe just me, huh? But maybe you do too. In amongst the dizzying arrays of scandals, pandemics, and wars, come back and see what is true. God has not forgotten you. He's not ambivalent towards you. He sees you in the places and the times nobody else does. When you laugh, when you cry. When you pray and you think he hasn't heard when you dare to believe that he has. He knows you intimately. Even the hairs on your head are numbered. You just have to move towards him. And like Nathaniel, he won't just tell you how you are, which is sometimes necessarily painful. He sees you as you will be too, if only you'll allow him to work with you. Like I've said, That's been and continues to be the scariest part of my walk with God in recent years. But I can tell you something else. I wouldn't change it for the world. It's not who you know. It's who knows you. You're not chasing after God because he's already waiting for you. And he already knows you. Finally, and briefly, the best is yet to come. Let me close with one more thought. In a split second, Nathaniel's whole world is changed and there is no going back. He knows now who Jesus is and he knows Jesus knows who he is and who he can be. And that changes everything like it should. Like he did with Jacob. God has just turned Nathaniel's world upside down. What does Nathaniel do with that? What do we do with that? Well, Jesus doesn't say, ah, yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad we had this conversation. Glad you recognized who I am. That is good. Uh, Just wanted to make sure we were both on the same page. Now you know. Feel free to go back to your fig tree or whatever. 
No. Instead, he says this. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angel of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's a strange old promise, isn't it? Well, some of you know exactly what it is, I expect. It's a reformulation of Jacob's ladder. Yes, Jacob, again. Anyway, Jacob has this dream, which you can find in Genesis 28, in which he sees a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching all the way to heaven and angels ascending and descending on it. And Jacob is in awe of this dream, of this gateway to heaven, and he names it Bethel after the worship band. Beth... <laughs> Beth-el means, it means house of God. Like Israel means he who sees God, he who contends with God. The L bit on, at the end is a name for God. I love words, me. Jesus is making a breathtaking claim. Once again in Old Testament shorthand that he is the son of man. A messianic title he's lifted from the book of Daniel. And that he is that gateway. He is the one that will be joining heaven and earth together with all that that implies. And he invites Nathaniel to watch it up close, in person, for himself. In other words, stick with me, Nathaniel. We're only just getting started. So if the worship team could come back, that would be, be great. Look, I've been a follower of Jesus for many years. And some of you have been Christians far longer than I have. I know this much, and some of you do too. It's not always plain sailing like any relationship. But I know the more I try and seek God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and invest in my relationship with him, the very relationship Jesus made possible when he joined heaven and earth on the cross, the more I meet him and change, and the better everything gets. A side note, and probably one that could take its own talk, if you're in a quiet or difficult patch this morning, don't believe for a second that God is aloof and distant. We may have a tendency to prefer memorable big bang moments in our walks with God. But that would be to overlook quiet, sometimes unnoticed, longer term shifts in our hearts and minds. God is not aloof and distant despite how it might feel at times. He's already invested far more than we could possibly understand and he's intensely interested in his creation. The question remains though, how much do you want to put in? It has nothing to do with religion. It has everything to do with the relationship. As God says in Hosea 6, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God knows everything about me. He always did. And he loves me far more than I could possibly understand. And he knows everything about you, too. And he knows all you could be. And he loves you more than you could possibly understand. To meet him, like Nathaniel did, is to be changed. It is an invitation to keep being changed. It is sometimes work, yes, but I promise there is nothing better whatsoever to spend your life on. Stick with Jesus. You're only just getting started. Let's stand.